to the Humanity Church Podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. Well, we're in the middle of a conversation that we're calling things you don't talk about at the dinner table because they're things that you just don't talk about at the dinner table. These are the things that when they're brought up, everyone's like, awkward, right? And uh, there are certain things that are totally acceptable to talk about at the dinner table. Uh, the weather and how the day went and uh, relationships and gossiping about other family members. But uh, there are certain things like money, sex, and politics that when you bring those up, everyone's just like, why are we having this conversation? And we at Humanity Church are committed to having all the conversations. Uh, some, you know, some churches call themselves seeker-sensitive, which usually means that we don't have certain conversations because it's going to be awkward. We are equally insensitive to everyone. And so uh, we, we, there's no conversation off limits, and we're just going to have all of them. Because here's the thing. If we don't have them, someone's going to have them. And so I figured that we might be the people who have the difficult conversations. And so we started talking about money, and we spent three weeks on money, which was very awkward for so many of us as, as we were convicted and had the conversations that we're not used to. And then two weeks ago, we started a conversation around sex. We paused it for Mother's Day. While all mothers have had sex, we decided it would not be an appropriate talk to, um, to have there, but we figured we'd pick it up afterwards today. Two weeks ago, we talked about how what our souls, all of us, actually long for is intimacy. That every single one of us, what we long for at our core is spiritual family. And that sex is not actually an intrinsic need. It's an instinctual drive for many of us. But you can actually go your entire life without having sex and be okay. I know that seems crazy. But you can't go your whole life without intimacy. You'll find yourself decaying and dying rather quickly And when we are unwilling to focus on spiritual intimacy and building spiritual family, we will actually settle for using sex. See, because sex is an interesting action because it is both a physical and a spiritual act. We talked about that two weeks ago and how it transcends both of these destinations. And when we separate the physical from the spiritual and say it's just a physical act or it's just a spiritual act, things get wonky. And usually we divorce the spiritual part of it and say it's just a physical act. And then what happens is we start using people for our drives, for our desires, for our pleasures. And then everyone is actually just left empty as a result of that. So today we're actually going to have this conversation and we're going to get into the nitty gritty details. And like I talked about two weeks ago, this conversation is hard to have in the church because it's been had so poorly over the years. It's been used to shame people, to judge people. It's been used to condemn people. And it is hard to have because we have had such a poor context created. So in many ways, it's part of our job to do damage control for years of the conversation while holding to truths that I would say are timeless and engaging some of these conversations in a way that brings life rather than brings shame. Because Up until now, I would say this conversation has been more about moralizing than it has been around what the scriptures actually say and why. Because this has been a topic that puts a label on people as to who are the good people and who are the bad people. 
And really, when you look at the life of Jesus, that's really not what he's up to. See, what Jesus is up to is a conversation around what brings life to everyone, what is good news for everyone, what actually moves us towards life and towards, towards wholeness. And the church has done a very poor job of having this conversation in a way that brings life. And like I mentioned earlier, it has alienated some and many of our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters, and it's created a space where there's shame and condemnation rather than a space to have conversation. And I want humanity to be a place where we can have open conversation, where we can even disagree and still say you belong and say you, this is a space for you and this is home, period. And that's what we long for. So here's the thing. Some of the things I'm going to say today are incredibly countercultural for everyone. So, so if you're like, hey, this is going to be countercultural for them, get ready. Because my guess is also going to be countercultural for you. Because most of this conversation is incredibly countercultural, whether we like it or not. And the other thing is I'm going to attempt to get about a month's worth of talks into about 40 minutes. So we're not going to cover the whole gamut of this. I will probably leave you with more questions than answers. And I figure Jesus did that, so it's okay. And we can have the ongoing conversation sidebars as we move forward. Also, today, I'm going to use a lot of scripture because I'm not actually interested in giving you my opinion about this. I'm actually interested in giving you what the scriptures say about this conversation. And then finally, like I said last week, I'm going to actually ask you to open your ears in this conversation, which I know is easier said than done because we listen to everything through our own cultural filters. You may hear something and immediately find yourself getting nervous or anxious. And today, I'm going to ask you to just listen and be present with what is you might be shocked about this. Now, here is my last caveat that I think is so important with this conversation. This conversation has nothing to do with whether or not you are loved by God. This conversation ha actually has nothing to do with whether or not you are valued and have worth. Because the scriptures say that there is actually nothing that you can do to separate yourself from God's love. The scriptures say that, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor anything created shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So I know that when I have this conversations one-on-one -on -one with people, the underlying question is usually, does God still love me? And I just want you to know, yes, period. And that your identity, your value, your worth has been established before the foundations of the earth were ever created. So nothing can take that away. So this really isn't a conversation about whether or not you are loved or valuable or are seen by God. And so I want to take this conversation out of that realm and into something completely new. See, we, we talked about how we all have this longing, this need for spiritual family, that we're made for relationships. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when we look out at the world, we live in a relational world, that everything is designed in the context of relationship, that, that we know exactly when the sun will rise and the sun will set every single day by the minute. We know when that's going to happen because there is this relational rhythm to the universe around us. We know when tides are going to be pulled in by the, by the location of the moon in relationship to the earth by the second every single day. We know when seasons are going to turn and when they are not going to turn based on the alignment of planets. The ecosystem around us is in a perfect relationship. In fact, we have this pond in our backyard that we put in a year ago. I talked about it last week. And around springtime, it's always interesting because as the temperatures warm up, so do the waters inside the pond, and algae starts to bloom. And there's a season where all of the water in the pond is green and murky for a long time. 
And it throws the ecosystem out of balance until the plants that were dormant during winter start to grow up and then they start to filter out the algae. And then as the plants grow, they're able to keep the waters clean. And it takes a while for the ecosystem to get back into balance. But once it's back into balance, everything is beautiful again. And God has created certain relationships and dynamics that he's called us into that create beauty and goodness in the world. And when one of those relationships is off, the the whole system is off. See, in this relational network, everything has a place and it has a design and it has a perfect purpose and nothing was created on accident. See, if one day the sun was just suddenly to decide, you know what? It's kind of been nice here in the center of the universe, but I think I'm going to go take a minute and go by, be by, by Neptune for a while. It would throw everything off. The sun doesn't get to say, you know, I feel like moving in relationship to the rest of the universe because it would completely transform the relational network that it finds itself in. Now, on a macro level, that's how the universe is created, but it also happens on a micro level in our relationships with one another. It happens in everything from how we relate to nutrition to how we relate to one another to how we relate to sex. That everything has a design and a purpose and is engaged in the context of relationship. And knowing the relationship between cause and effect, where things are actually designed to be and how they were designed to properly operate, actually gives us wisdom. That when we are able to see, oh, this is how it fits in the grand scheme and this is how I get to operate with it, it allows us to operate with life. And here's the great thing about wisdom. It allows us to move freely through our life. That's what wisdom does. It allows us to know how to operate within this relational network freely. See, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, Paul starts this out with these words that I think all of us really love, and he says, you can do whatever you want. How many of you are like, yes, amen, right? Favorite, favorite verse in the Bible, right? <laughs> Started out by, I have the right to do everything and anything. Here's what I love about this, where Paul starts this off, is we immediately though, this is not, know that this is not a conversation about control, that God is not interested in controlling you. But, because Paul actually says, look, you can do whatever you want. But then he goes on and says, but not everything is actually going to be for your benefit, Not everything is actually going to move your life towards wholeness and towards beauty. See, early on in life, I learned that if you touch a hot curling iron, you're going to be burned. That that, that is wisdom right there, cause and effect. Touch it, you're burned, yes? And so I learned that that is how the world operates. When something's hot, you don't touch it because it's going to burn you. Now, here's the thing. I could continue on going, no one's going to tell me what to do with the curling iron. When Marla curls her hair, I'm going to grab that thing. I do what I want. I have the right to do anything. And I can certainly do that. Now, I will find myself quickly with third-degree burns and struggling to pick up other things and then wondering why I'm in so much pain all the time. Or I can go, oh, this is actually the way that the universe was set up, that when you touch hot things, that it burns you and that it is not going to be beneficial to keep moving forward in this. And when I recognize that this is the reality, the framework that I work within, it gives me freedom to know how to move. Now I'm not like concerned about the heat and I'm not walking around in pain, but I actually know how to utilize the heat in its proper context to cook, to create beauty, to create warmth around me. See, here's the thing. 
you can either master things in life or they will master you. Those are your only two options. Those are really the only two options that you find yourself. So part of our spiritual work is learning and discerning the context of the design that God has placed us in and why he's actually stepped into that so that, so that for the purpose of living in freedom. I mean, how many of you, when you look out your life, you say, I would love some more freedom. I would love to actually learn how to navigate through life freely. See, if you're someone who's saying, I want to live a free life, you actually have to know what is the relationship between cause and effect and how does it fit in the cosmic design that God actually set up for me. So I would actually like to move this conversation around sex and sexuality out of the realm of who is good and who is bad and even what is good and what is bad, but what is wise and what actually brings beauty and what actually brings wholeness and at the end of the day, what actually sets us free in this See, because here's why this is so critical, is that you will either be mastered by your sexuality and your sex, your urges and your desires and your drives, or you will master your sexuality. One of those two will be the case for you. And one will actually bring enslavement and the other will set you free. Now, what if the why behind this conversation was not about control? What if the why behind this conversation was an invitation into goodness for all of us? That's how I want to enter into this conversation today. And and one of the greatest tools we have as human beings to enter into this conversation is this one word question, why? Have you ever noticed that toddlers ask that question a lot? It's super annoying, right? I think we're past the why phase with our kids, but I remember early on, Jackson especially would just be like, why, why, and I give him, you know, why is that sky blue? Well, you know, the water reflects on the sky, why? I don't know, son, right? And it was just an endless, endless asking of why. Because here's the thing, in his brain, he was trying to make sense of the world. He was going, wait, why does that do that? And why do they do that? And why do we do this thing? And why does the world operate like that? He was trying to make sense of the world around us. And, and while it's annoying to a toddler, it can be very effective for us as human beings with God. I don't know if you know this, but you're actually allowed to ask God why. He doesn't always give you the answer, which is super annoying. But when he does, it can be so powerful for us. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20, it says, You say, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one in spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now, if we were going to start with a meta why, like a big why, here is the big meta why that the scriptures give us, is that our bodies were actually made to house the very spirit of God. That, that 
When we surrender to him, he actually comes and lives within us, that he replaces our dead spirit, and he comes in and gives us his living Holy Spirit in the midst of this. Now, here's the thing. When someone asks, where is God? When someone points, like, hey, where is God in this, or where can I find God? People oftentimes look up, right? In fact, there's all kinds of, of quotes or, or uh, statues of people, you know, lifting their heads up to God, praying. Even when you see Jesus praying, he's always lifting his head up, hands up, right? Reality is that when you actually see why and where God lives, and if we were to look and point to where he lives, we should actually be praying like this. Dear Jesus, because he lives within us. He actually moves within us, and and there is a space and a reality that we carry around with us in our bodies, the Spirit of God. Now, Paul later on actually says, because of this, we are ambassadors for God and his kingdom, that we represent him everywhere we go, and everything that we do actually represents God and who he is. See, here's the thing. Ambassadors are not actually concerned about their own preferences, their own desires, their own needs in the situations. Ambassadors are only concerned about one thing, making sure that the desires and the context for the country and the region that they are representing are presented accurately. That's all they're really concerned about. And they steward their own desires to accurately represent the kingdom that they are from. So see, it would be super weird if like the ambassador to the United States from Brazil came in and there was a meeting and the president met with the ambassador of Brazil and said, hey, tell me, how does Brazil want to operate with us economically? And the ambassador said, well, you know, the president there said this, but I've been thinking about it. And, uh, you know, I actually feel that this would be a much better plan. And so I'm going to present this. He, he would cease to be an exa- or he or she would cease to be an ambassador in that moment, and they would suddenly be a representative of their own thoughts, their own desires. See, as ambassadors, it is our job to ask the question: What does the king actually long for us to represent? What is it that we are actually to birth and to create here and now? In the same way as ambassadors from the kingdom of God, as temples of the Holy Spirit, as those of us who carry around His Spirit within us, all of us are called to steward our sexuality to reflect the relational design and desires of the kingdom and how we engage this act of sex. And the beauty of this is that if we are to connect to his desires in the kingdom, in this relational design, what we can know is that the design was made to maximize freedom. That's what he's up to. So in other words, when we are ambassadors for him, we are ambassadors for the greatest level of freedom given to humanity wherever we go. And there are a a few ways that we are called to steward our sexuality as ambassadors of Christ. See, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 4, as Paul continues, he says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body and yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Now, listen, it's a ma- I know it's really hard to imagine any cultural context like this in Corinth where Paul is writing this letter, but just imagine, like let your imagination go wild of a culture where everyone was having sex with whoever they wanted. 
I know that's really hard to imagine, but, but they, they were just kind of making up the rules as they went or lack thereof and deciding that, that anything went with them in this space. And Paul comes in and he noticed what's taking place and he says, whoa, 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 hold on just one second. Did you forget that you're ambassadors of Christ? Did you forget that his spirit lives within you? And let me just remind you that your body is actually a temple housing his spirit. And so, yes, if you look at sex as just a physical act, that would make sense. Do whatever you want. But because it is also a spiritual act, you might actually want to consult the spirit that lives within you as to what he would have you do in this. So he gives us this context for sexual activity and the relational design that it was made for. See, the only context that I can see in the scriptures given for sexual activity is the context of Christian marriage. He says husbands would only have sex with their wives and wives only have sex with their husbands. And in Matthew 19, Jesus, he gives us this definition of what Christian marriage is. And this is from his mouth. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, what Jesus does is he refers back to this original design. He actually goes all the way back to Genesis, like the very beginning of the whole story. And he defines marriage as this lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. And then if we're going to continue on with the design manual, it also continues and says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I know this is incredibly countercultural already. But what if this wasn't about Jesus being exclusionary. What if this wasn't about Jesus being a killjoy or controlling, but about bringing the kingdom design into focus and that that was getting highlighted, that this would be the goodness for both sex and marriage? Now, here's, here's the problem that I find most pastors and most churches get themselves in. They find themselves using this framework that goes like this. The Bible says it, that settles it. Yeah. And that's fine, until what the Bible says actually leaves us with a lot of questions and a lot of hurt and a lot of, wait, what? See, and this is why I actually think it is so important to continue this why conversation. But why? Why is the context for marriage and sex this? Why would God set that up? Why isn't sex just between two people who have feelings for each other? Why isn't marriage expanded for anyone who wants to stay committed together? Is is there's something beyond this. And actually, this is where it gets more countercultural for straight people than anyone else. Because it says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, as you continue, nevertheless, each person, person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God had called them. This is the rule I lay down to all the churches. Now, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, we are called into certain lives and what we call vocations. Just as you have a career that's like your vocation, there are certain spiritual journeys that we are called to as a vocation. See, all of us are called to follow Jesus. All of us are called to submit our lives to him. All of us are called to love every single human being unconditionally as he unconditionally loves us. So those are callings that are on every single one of our lives, period. But then God gives each of us specific callings that we get to step into with this. See, for some of you, God has called you to be a teacher, and he's called you to teach 
For some of you, God has called you to work overseas and to leave your home country and to step into other contexts. For some of you, God has called you to be a spiritual activist and proclaim his truth wherever you go and to step into that. I remember when God called me as a pastor and when God said, hey, this is what I have for your life. This is what I've designed for you. My first thought was, oh God, anything else but that. And I remember calling my great-grandmother at the time, who I come from a line of lots of pastors, and I remember calling my great-grandmother and saying, uh, I think that I'm called to be a pastor. And on the phone, I kid you not, she started crying, and she said, is there anything else that God's calling you into? Because she had lived the life with that calling, <laughs> and she knew that it was not an easy calling to step into. But here's the thing, I knew intrinsically that this was part of my unique calling and design, and if God was calling me into that, I knew that it was going to bring the greatest good to the world around me, and it was going to bring the greatest good to my life. And here's the thing, I know this is hard to imagine, but in this calling, in the calling to step into this role, things get difficult every now and then. I know that's very hard to imagine. Some of you get difficult. <sighs> and in those moments where it's so tempted to say, I quit, I'm done, usually every Monday morning, <laughs> I go back to the calling and I say, no, 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 I'm called. I'm called. So I actually don't get a choice in the matter. I stay in the calling here. See, that's the beautiful thing about a calling is that I subjugate all of my own experiences and feelings and thoughts to the calling. And I say, no, I'm called, period. So I'm in. See, when things get difficult and I want to quit, the calling is what calls me back into my commitment. And this might be actually the most controversial, countercultural thing I'm going to say all morning. The scriptures say that our statuses, our marriages, whether that is single, married, is actually a calling by God. That all of us, period, are called by God to steward our sexuality either into a temporary season of singleness, a life of singleness, or a vocation of Christian marriage. And that God calls us into those things. Now, in our culture, marriage has no longer been connected to a calling. It's actually been connected to feelings and emotions. And this is where we get in trouble because the default for us is this. When I get to a certain age, which is usually puberty, I start thinking, who am I going to date and who am I going to marry? That's just the default that we just all naturally find ourselves stepping into. And the church has actually perpetuated this view probably worse than anyone else. I remember growing up as a kid, my parents, before I could even talk, were praying for my spouse. And then when I was older and single, every single well-meaning old lady in the church was trying to hook me up with someone. I got a nephew, I got a grandson, I got a cousin next door, I got this guy I just met at Starbucks, all right, whatever it may be. And we find ourselves like that, or we find ourselves pitying the single. Oh, poor you. God has someone for you. Just hang on. One day your miserable existence will be cured. And I remember as a single man, I was like, What? I'm actually good. Like, I'm fine. I, I feel secure. I know who I am. I don't need this over here. But you see, this is what this way of relating to marriage has created. 
Suddenly we find ourselves saying, I feel a certain way towards another person, and so now I get to test if I'm compatible with them, and I get to see if we're compatible, and that usually, part of figuring out that compatibility usually involves seeing if you're sexually compatible with them before you get committed, which which is actually a a horrible way to see if you're compatible with someone, because P.S., I don't know if you know this, for those of you who are single in the room, but you're going to spend a lot more time with your spouse talking and working and paying bills than you are going to be having sex. And let me just tell you this. Let me just tell you this. You can actually work out the sex part. Working out character is a much more difficult process. It's actually a horrible indicator as to whether or not you should marry people. And our culture says things like, well, you have to test drive the car first. The problem is cars break down eventually. And so we find ourselves thinking about marriage if you have the right feelings and if I feel it in a certain way or if I'm getting along with you, then we can get married And then when I'm no longer feeling it, I'm out. When I no longer have the tingles or the butterflies are gone or things get difficult, I'm out. Because there's actually no calling connected to it. It was all just based on whether I was compatible and felt it in the moment. And we wonder why this version of marriage has a 50-50 proposition. Why this current version of marriage is actually a failed proposition. See, what if biblical marriage isn't about romance and emotion and sex? What could it be about? See, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives us actually the why behind Christian marriage that would make sense why it's a calling and not just about feelings. And it says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your, yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or without any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, they keep going back to the original design. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife and submit himself, and his wife must respect her husband. See, marriage is actually designed to be this beautiful calling to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. That's what the calling is. So Jesus lays down his life sacrificially or, uh, and loves the church. So the husband lays down his wife sacrificially and loves the church. The church submits our lives to Jesus and follows him. So the wife submits herself to her husband. Now both are, both are called to submission to one another. This is not a one submits and the other doesn't. This is both submit to one another. The, the husband just has the also calling of laying down his life as well on top of it. And see, marriage creates this powerful and secure context to bring new life into the world. 
just as the church was designed to be the place where we birth people into new life and expand the kingdom of God here and now, partnering with God in bringing new life into existence. So here's this broader context of the why that keeps unfolding in the scriptures is that marriage is a calling into a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman in the intention of representing the kingdom relationship between Jesus and the church. And that sex is then a gift given to a marriage to merge those souls together so that this lifelong covenant and calling could actually be fulfilled. So that it actually could merge two together to fulfill this calling, but also to fulfill, fulfill this calling to be fruitful and multiply in the scriptures. And this is why it says in Hebrews, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. See Why? Because sex is designed to serve the calling of marriage rather than us serving our drive to have sex. There's a difference between the two. See, what if my sexual drive wasn't an indicator as to whether or not I should get married? See, that seems to be not working so well in our culture just based on results. What if instead of asking, like right off the bat, who should I get married to? We started asking the question, am I called to marriage for the purpose of representing the kingdom? Or am I called to singleness? See, we discern our calling from God, and then we allow that calling to determine how we steward our sex and sexuality for the sake of the kingdom as ambassadors for him. Rather than looking to our feelings as the indicators which shift and ebb and flow by the day, by the hour, by the year, by the month, we would look to God and say, who are you calling me to be? And what are you calling me into to serve your kingdom and actively reflect who you are? See, because I actually think that way more people in our culture are called not into marriage but into this gift of singleness, And that, by the way, is actually an incredible calling, equal to marriage in importance and purpose. See, I actually look at my friends who are called into singleness, and whether they're called for a life of singleness or they're called into a temporary season of singleness, can I just say that you are freed up to give your life away in ways that Marla and I could never give our life away. In fact, there are times where I am like, man, they have so much time and energy and they have so much resource available to them that just gets zapped away with raising children. And they just get zapped. And to be honest, that just gets zapped away in the tension of marriage. You have more time, more energy, more, fur- more purpose for the things of God than any married person does. And in this way, you actually also fulfill the calling on your life to be fruitful and multiply. That you're being fruitful and multiply just looks like investment in tons of human beings. That the energy that you have been gifted is a gift. Now, this may be temporary or you may discern that this is a lifelong calling, but do not despise that calling or let anyone, anyone tell you that it is less than. I have a friend who, named Peter Valk, and he's gay and he's single. And one of the things that I love about him is that he says, I have the vision to make married people so jealous. Yeah. He's like, I want married people to wish that they had the calling of singleness on their life. 
That when they're off, oh, we got to do this with the kids, and, and we're working through this thing in marriage counseling, and we're in this struggle, and we're fighting. He just goes, we're going to the movies, and then we're going to Japan for a little while, and then we're going to go serve the poor at midnight, and we're going to have a blast doing it. And I love that. I think that's the way we should look at this calling of this and say, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> and here's the thing. For those of you who are called into singleness, whether it's temporary or for a vocational lifetime, my guess is that your sexual desires and drives are probably not going away. See, I think people think if I'm called into a vocation of singleness or even temporary singleness, then, then these drives will somehow be taken away from me. But the reality is, is that in the same way that a married person's drive to have sex with whomever they want doesn't go away, yours probably won't go away either. So you, just like anyone who is married, are also called to steward your sexuality in a way that would honor God. And P.S., marriage is not the easier calling. Any married person can tell you that. <laughs> that it is not the easier calling, it is not the, the more convenient calling. I'm going to just tell you right now, that is a myth. Have you seen married people? I mean, the amount of people that are in our living room with Marla and I on a regular basis with marriage counseling is way more than any single person that we meet with, I guarantee you. Yes. Yes. See, because here's the thing. Our fulfillment is actually not about the calling. It's about the way we are relating to the calling. And again, for those of you who are single in this room, either temporarily or who have discerned this is your vocational calling, I am sorry that the church has made it harder on you. I am sorry that the church has pitied you and that it has put you in places at times that are awkward. And I'm just letting you know that we at Humanity Church are committed to doing a better job at being a place where someone who lives in a vocational singleness has spiritual family and is priority. And look, if someone in our community is called to vocational singleness or even a temporary season of singleness, we better make sure that they have family and places to be at holidays and places to celebrate birthdays. And look, when we do family events at Humanity Church, I want all of the bonus aunts and uncles there because I want family to go beyond just blood and be about who we are choosing to be as spiritual family, that we have chosen family and that we are seen as whole and beautiful and respected the whole way. And there is something so beautiful in that. And I know that still, that many of you in this room experience same-sex attraction. And I am so grateful that you have chosen to be in, even in this context today. The fact that you have stepped in this room makes you one of my personal heroes. Yeah. And like I said earlier, the church has done a horrible job of creating space for you. And all of the open, honest conversations that need to be had are closed down so quickly, mostly because what the church has preached has been driven by fear. Now, here's the crazy thing is we can believe the same thing, but how we believe it transforms everything. Because most of these conversations are driven about being afraid of what to say and not to say and how to say it. And too many young people have been kept in the closet and unable to come out with what they're feeling and experiencing out of fear or shame from either people or God. And this is a safe space to come out and to have those conversations, to engage in them in the light. I pray that we are a community where young people, from the moment that they start experiencing these desires, would be free to say, hey, this is what's going on for me, out of fear or shame or condemnation, and that they could come out in that. And I want you to know 
that you are not sinful or dirty or unloved simply because of your attractions. That that is not the case. I also want to let you know that just like everyone else in the room, your desires and attractions probably aren't changing. And we know that just from, like, statistics. That actually only about 3% of people who experience same-sex attraction ever have any other different attraction in there. And we don't know if that's from nature or nurture. Science really hasn't figured that out. But the attempt to change them through Christian conversion therapy or praying it away has had devastating results on individuals. There has been greater levels of depression and anxiety, pleading with God to take these desires away, and yes, even suicide. It has created a, a horrible context for people to engage this conversation within us. And so we are not a place where we are ever going to promise you or say that God will change your desires. But as a theologian that I love, Jackie Hill Perry said, Jesus did not die to make you straight. He died to make you holy. And with that, this is what Jesus invites you into. He invites you into stewarding your sexuality in the same wisdom that he calls all of us into. For some of you, that may be a calling into singleness. For some of you, that may be a calling into Christian marriage, to, to marrying a member of the opposite sex, even with those desires and attractions. And again, that is not a mandate. It has to be a calling. Because marriage does not solve or fix anything. See, the beautiful thing about this is that it takes this out of the realm of what am I feeling, and it puts it in the realm of what am I called to, and how do I steward it in that context. And I love that we have so many men and women in our community who are gay and are living out both of these options with love and support and care. And I'm sorry that the church has assumed that you were the only ones who needed to steward your sexuality. That we have singled you out as the special case. When actually, it's the straight men in the building who have improperly stewarded their sexuality. See, we have turned a blind eye to the amount of porn that is being watched or the amount of people that are sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend or ending a marriage covenant simply because it wasn't convenient anymore. And then we've put an undue burden on you. See, here at Humanity Church, we want to just level the playing field and say, this is not about who's right and who's wrong. This is just about how is God calling all of us to steward our sexuality and our sex. Because I want to make this crystal clear this morning that all of our sexuality is flawed. That all of us are in need of stewarding our sexuality towards the calling that God has placed on our lives. That we are all in a space where we are called to steward how we engage sex and sexuality in light of our call to be temples of the Holy Spirit, ambassadors for his kingdom. Whether that's a vocation of Christian marriage, whether that's singleness, and even for those of you who are sexual minorities coming alongside of you and caring for you, but all of us are in need of stewarding our broken sexuality.
in some way, shape, or form. We don't get out of it. See, this, this is the hard work. It is the good work of bringing us back to the original design. Because here's what we know about the original design, is that it is in the original design where heaven meets earth. It is in the original design where God comes and he says, look, you no longer have to be enslaved by your desires, but that we are those who become masters of our desires. See, we become masters as we follow Jesus into his goodness. And look, this is messy. I know a lot of churches like to make this seem like it's a cut and dry thing. And the problem is, is that you can have truth, but without grace, it nullifies the truth. Without love, it nullifies the truth. And they have to walk alongside of one another. Actually, no, no. Love has to move further faster for truth to have a place to step into. But if we are willing to stay in this conversation together and with God, I am convinced that we will see beauty come from our willingness to go back to the relational design for all of us. That if every single one of us in this room, not not a select few, not that cultural outcasts, not those who we've deemed worthy of a scarlet letter, but all of us, would steward our sexuality and our desires according to the calling that God has called us into. At the end of the day, this conversation is about goodness and we will see that come. That we will bring the greatest good into the world if we're willing to do that. See, Jesus is inviting all of us to trust him with our sex and sexuality. And that as we do that, we might taste and see that he is good in that. If we trust him with our deepest desires. I want all of you to know that I believe at my core, because I've read it in the scriptures and I've experienced it in my own life, is that this is good news for everyone, not for a select few. And I firmly believe that he is calling us into that goodness. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you have given us such wisdom for our lives. God, and I know this conversation is difficult for some, that historically it has a lot of shame, a lot of baggage, a lot of questions connected to it. I ask God that you would bring peace today, that you would even just whisper into people's identities and values and worth and let them know how much they are loved. And God, I pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds to be invited into this calling, this stewardship of this thing called sex and sexuality. That we who are followers of Jesus might take on the full beauty and weight and glory of being your temple ambassadors for your kingdom, God. And that as we steward all of our decisions, all of our lives, according to that calling, God, that we would immediately begin seeing the fruit and the beauty and the wholeness and the goodness that comes from that. Jesus, I I ask that we would be the place that would repair the historic conversations that have been had 
that have left people broken and hurting and in pain, and that we would give a message of life and hope to every single person that hears it. God, would, would we be those who redeem the time, redeem the hour, who speak into this deeply cultural, countercultural moment and bring hope and truth and love all together, God, that people would know that you have called them by name and that you love them so deeply. God, that people would know that they belong, period. And that we might be those who invite people into a life of goodness that would transform the world around us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope that it was a meaningful experience and look forward to having you listen in next week for another conversation from the heart and soul of Humanity Church. You can find more information about our community at www.humanitychurch.com 